big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise. Don't take money. Don't take fame. Don't need no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's sudden, and it's cool sometimes. And it might just save your life. That's the power of Eastern Promise. Welcome to episode 63 of Eastern Promise, a tale of triumph and determination. The triumph of Cambridge Tech Week and the determination of the East of England Local Government Association to address the housing debate. First up, Chris Bruce from the Cambridge Tech Week Steering Committee looks back over this hugely enjoyable week of events, debates and exhibitions. Plus, we'll hear what attendees want to see in Cambridge Tech Week 2024. I'll also be joined by Adam Thorpe and Matthew Stewart of the East of England Local Government Association to discuss their recent report on housing, which injects much-needed light into a heated debate. And finally, as always, my crowd sorcerers are taking the cake. But where are they taking it from? Let's find out together in a brand new crowd sorcery. This month saw the first ever Cambridge Tech Week. Yes, only the first. Can you believe that? And as far as this attendee was concerned, it was a triumph. In particular, it was a joy to watch attendees from across the region, nay, the world, share their enthusiasm for the event on social media. I whipped out my trusty microphone during the coffee breaks of Thursday's big tech debate to find out more. First... I asked Dr Julian Huppert, former MP for Cambridge and Director of the Intellectual Forum at Jesus College Cambridge, to give me his highlights of the event so far. Dr Julian Huppert, Director of the very impressively titled Intellectual Forum. That is, sounds a little bit scary and I'm going to ask you to expand on that in a second. You've been here obviously the whole time. What have you made of it so far? Um, I mean, it's been a really amazing event, uh, and it's great to see this happen. It's astonishing in some ways to think this is the very first Cambridge Tech Week. You know, there's been so much Cambridge Tech here, but we haven't always remembered to tell people about it. You know, whether we're thinking about Arm, which is a company which has transformed mobile devices around the world, there are more Arm chips shipped a year than there are human arms. It's an amazing scale. But, but also whether we think about you know, Humira, which has been the biggest selling drug in the world for many, many years, till it recently came off patent, developed here in Cambridge. We talk about real VNC, we talk about CMR surgical. There's so many things here, we haven't always told people about them. So that's been really wonderful. I think you're absolutely right. And we are not, as a region, I think, not very good about shout shouting about what we do. We kind of feel a bit of, um, a bit of reticence about that. Um, and... Before we come on to the actual forum, the, oh, I forgot the, I forgot the question. I had a really good question, I think, and now it's gone. Um, 
well, expand. Well, I can cut well, that so, so one session I found particularly entertaining earlier yes. today was a uh, debate that I sort of took part in about whether AI will destroy humanity. So we had three great speakers, and then the fourth speaker was voiced by me, but was entirely generated by ChatGPT oh, wow. live during the debate. Uh, so it's quite nerve-wracking typing in, you know, write me a speech. Um, and what was fascinating was to actually use ChatGPT in anger, as it were. Um, so I had to, you know, my, I spoke twice. My final one was a, a one-minute summary. And I had to type in about, you know, a very short instruction, write me a short impassioned speech about why AI will not destroy humanity and include a couple of jokes. And it gave a really good speech I could just read out. Were you persuaded by the speech it provided? <laughs> or could you think, yeah, I could do better? Um, I think one could improve a speech. It certainly wasn't exactly the way I would phrase a speech. I didn't agree with everything. No. But what was amazing was that in not very long at all, it generated a high-quality thing which you could just polish. Yeah. And I think that's... People are getting caught up with that. Will, will uh, something like ChatGPT replace speeches, will replace journalism? No, but it will replace the first three or four stages. Yeah. And it will allow people to focus on editing and fine-tuning, not on making. Yeah. And I think that's quite amazing. I mean, you and I both know that there is a trick to, to, to crafting something that can tug at the, uh, at the emotions. Um, and uh, so what I want to, tell us about the Intellectual Forum, because I'm fascinated. I don't think I'm get, I'd get in, but tell us more. No, absolutely you would. And in some ways the name is, is, is a bit of an issue. But um, we were set up at Jesus College in Cambridge in 2016 to get people to think and talk about some of the biggest issues of our time. Um, and we run lots of different types of programme. The Heart is a series of publicly accessible talks. We've had people from around really? the world listening in, and they cover pretty much everything. Uh, over the years, we've had people like Jimmy Chu, the fashion designer, mm. shoe designer, who gave me some shoes, which was very oh, nice wow. of them. Very good. We've also had people like Julia Gillard, who was Prime Minister of Australia, yeah. mm. uh, now runs the Wellcome Trust. You know, we've had an amazing collection of people. Yeah. Uh, Al Jean, the executive producer of The Simpsons, you know, amazing people. Mm. Um, last night we had Leroy Logan, who was chair of the Black Police Association, was involved right. with the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, and McPherson, Damalola Taylor, but also helping to run the Olympics 2012 response. Yeah. Um, next week we've got the uh, CEO of the sustainable fashion brand, Chloe, you know, a really big company, right. talking about sustainable fashion. So these events are available almost always online, but they're free for anybody to either come to or to watch online. Um, we also do some high-level summits looking at things like responsible AI or sustainable finance. But most of our stuff is open to the general public, and we really are keen to get people from anywhere in Cambridge, anywhere in the east of England, anywhere in the world to come and be part of these conversations. Yeah. How would you rate the, the ease of people from the rest of our region to get involved in Cambridge? Because I've, I've been struck by the warm welcome once you're in uh, and I and I think that that's something that from both ends we need to work on how would you how would you rate that I think it depends on what area you're in and what sort of thing you're looking for um, from a international forum perspective everything's free come along um, if you if you can't travel great that's why we live stream everything yeah. so you can be part of that we experimented last night with a thing where you could pose video questions ahead of the event so even if you can't quite even make the event mm. you could ask the speaker something and get answers so we're trying to do that 
I think part of the issue is that Cambridge works because it's very networked. And it works because you have a small community. And just like in a small village, everybody knows everybody. And so you don't have to write complicated contracts for agreements because you know this person because they go to the same pub. And you know that when they say they'll fix this thing, they'll do it. Cambridge is like a, a very large village in that way. Um, I set up a small biotech company many years ago. It didn't, didn't succeed. But we could do a lot of things because you could quickly ask people questions and get help yeah. that you needed without having to cost it all out, go through all the processes. So I think that's, uh, that's the secret of Cambridge, that interconnection network effect. Yeah. The downside is, if you're not part of that, it can be slightly harder to integrate. So if anybody would like to be part of the Cambridge ecosystem, come along and be part yeah, of Events by the Tech Week. Make that Talk to people, engage. be a human. Yeah. So we occasionally see, I shouldn't pick on Americans, but American companies who say, you know, I'm not going to try doing the accent. We want to be in Cambridge. We've set up an office. We've sent some people there to do things. They're surprised people don't come and talk to them. Mm. It's because they haven't spent the time You've got to, to be involved, to be known, to understand how people interact and to be friendly. Yeah. What happens here is there's a lot of discussions, quite open, quite trusting discussions, which things are built out of, rather than commercial discussions from yeah. the beginning. And last question, and I'll let you get back to the, the, the coffee break, but... What would you like to see from Cambridge Tech Week 2024? Um, it's been an immense effort to make this happen. Um, and I think the second one will always be better because we know more about what there is. I think there's so much more that we could do. I'd like to see more people coming here from more places. I'd love to see if we can think about ways of broadcasting some of it more widely. Um, there, there's no replacement for actually being somewhere. You know, and actually having conversations. But equally, I don't want people traveling around the world, you know, just just for this. We can't afford that much uh, no. air travel. Um, so I think there's lots more we could talk about. And I think we should also start thinking about some of the work that's being looked at by Innovate Cambridge as well, about not just yeah. what can we do, not just selling Cambridge tech to the world, but also what do we do with Cambridge? How do we make Cambridge more inclusive? How do we link Cambridge to its own community, which is not as equal as we need it to be, and to the east of England and more broadly? So I think it can become a richer, bigger event that showcases us internationally, but also helps us to really reflect. Dr. Julian Hubbard, what a pleasure. Thank you very much for talking to Eastern Promise. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Friday saw Cambridge Science Park and the Bradfield Centre greet international guests, here at the invitation of our good friends at Cambridge And. I asked Paula Rogers-Brown of Connect Health Tech and the Milner Therapeutics Institute to give me her take on the secret to engaging with the Cambridge ecosystem. Here at Cambridge Tech Week, we're all about bringing people together. I've, you know, I've heard many times across this week, um, you know, where do I go in? How do I start? Just start a conversation because if so I true. don't know, I can certainly signpost you to somebody who may know or somebody else, or an organisation, entity, etc. There is no wrong door. Cambridge is definitely open, globally as well. Um, and we just need to start the conversation. That's all. Don't be frightened to start the conversation. I, I think that is so true, and uh, that's what I hope Eastern Promise can help with mm -hmm. uh, and, and lead on that. And uh, because Norwich is such a, 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 a key hub of plant science, looking at things like antimicrobial resistance. I interviewed Nick Tolbert, Professor Nick Tolbert, the director of the Sainsbury Laboratory, and he showed me that, I don't know if you've ever seen the ceiling of the coffee room, it's full of dents. 
and each dent is signed because every time they discover something, they pop off a champagne cork and it hits the ceiling, they sign the dent. There's a lot of dents. And what is, what is the best way, do you think, you say you start a conversation, of starting those conversations along that corridor between a, a, hubs like a huge hub like Cambridge, which you know are an incredibly big ecosystem, slightly smaller, but still rich and vibrant ecosystem in Norwich. How do we connect that up? And, and indeed Suffolk Essex as well, I don't want to be exclusive. I think there are a number of ways and there are a number of networks that we have um, based across the eastern region, whether that's um, a business network like One Nucleus or Cambridge Network. Um, and clearly um, opportunities like Cambridge Tech Week that brings in people from at different points from across not just the county um, and, and the, the region, but more from the UK perspective and globally as well. Um, but you have different connecting entities. One, clearly, Connect Health Tech is one, and that's in the health tech space, which brings together the physical and life sciences for that interdisciplinary, cross-discipline working and collaboration. That is a great connecting tool. You can't ever um, move away from physical um, networking and events, but Connect Health Tech is a real digital first tool yeah. which can start to bring in and keep the conversations going. That's the thing, isn't across, it? The keeping it moving. Absolutely, across the eastern region, across the UK. You don't need to be in Cambridge if you're a member of Connect Health Tech and you work within MedTech. Um, digital health or therapeutics um, if you're in that space then yeah be a part of that community to connect and collaborate and further those interdisciplinary collaborations. So remind us where people go to to be part of that. To, be a, to join Connect Health Tech just go to um, connect.cam.ac.uk and join the community. That is fantastic. And or just Google, Connect Health Tech. Indeed. You're, I mean, the energy you brought to the room was absolutely palpable. Thank you very much. And your much. enthusiasm for Cambridge and its ecosystem came through. So, so pleased to have you in the region and in Cambridge doing, doing, doing yeah. that and, and bringing your energy to that fantastic work. Thank you so work. much. It's all about democratising access to the great wealth of expertise that we have here in Cambridge, but also to bring in new ideas, new thinking and new approaches because it's a... When we do that, we really have a great convergence of ideas, research, people and resources to then create those transformative services and, and products and treatments for the future. Well, there you are, folks. You, 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 you heard it loud and clear. What a fantastic ecosystem to be a part of. Paula Rogers-Brown, thank you so much for thank talking to Eastern Thank you very much, Promise. Mike. Thank we you. We're absolutely delighted to support uh, Connect Health Tech in, in, in all your efforts to Lovely. grow the sector. Thank, thank you. Thank you. So, now we know what attendees made of it, let's take a deeper dive with Chris Bruce of the Cambridge Tech Week Steering Committee. I mean, I was just listening back to some of the audio I captured on the, the big debate day, which was the Thursday. Oh, yes. There was one participant who was saying that he was initially sceptical because he'd been to London Tech Week and how could they possibly do this in Cambridge? And he then sort of held his hands up and said, they did it. Congratulations. Right. You, you must have been uh, overjoyed with the reception that it got. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, you know, this has been a long time in, in the making. By the nature of it, we're bringing together a lot of stakeholders, kind of meet a number of people's uh, desires across Cambridge and, in fact, the, the wider region. And um, it was just delightful, really, to see so many of those aims and goals come to fruition. And 
you know, I'm, I'm very happy. What stood out for you as your as your your one moment that you'll you'll treasure almost? Well, there's so many, but I think Patrick Pichet stole the show yeah. on day one when he spoke quite candidly about his experience of buying 150 companies whilst being CFO of Google, including yeah. YouTube and Maps and all that sort of stuff, um, and Android, uh, and then being even more candid about how he helped to relieve Elon Musk uh, from um, $44 billion with, with cash uh, in his efforts to buy Twitter, which was a, uh, a very frank, enlightening and, and quite amusing story that he was telling. One of the things that's wonderful about uh, an event like Cambridge Tech Week is the level of connection and networking that you can do uh, in the coffee breaks uh, in between events. Just, even just for yourself, there must have been a lot of that. And have people come back to you and sort of relayed their experiences of building, you know, extending their network exponentially almost? Well, I know personally my network has, has grown significantly in the lead up to this event and during the event. And I met a number of number of people that um, I'd either only spoken to or, or messaged with um, and not had the chance to meet face to face and have a chat. So that was really, really good for me. As I think I mentioned before, Mike, I'm not based in Cambridge. So actually meeting some yeah. of the Cambridge uh, ecosystem or members of it face to face was great. And I've definitely broadened my uh, networking areas that I wasn't so familiar with, like quantum and AI. Really pleased, actually, that a number of people said to me they'd really like to help with uh, putting on one next year. So uh, that's broadened my network of um, volunteers. Absolutely. So people should get involved uh, next year because it was it was a wonderful week. And I'll just ask, ask you, Chris, if you could just talk us through what those who couldn't make it missed on a day-to-day basis, starting with day one. Okay. So as you know, it's it's a it was five days of, of events. First day was somewhat overtaken by uh, His Majesty the King and his coronation. So the Monday became a bank holiday. But we'd always intended that to be a day for fr- what we call fringe events or conversations. So there were quite pleasingly a number of events for children and young people to get exposure to uh, tech, uh, including something that Cambridge Wireless put, put on itself called uh, CW Texters, which is something we do for young people to give them exp- experience of tech and the tech community. Uh, moving on to what you, what I think you're referring to, day one, day one of the conference, which was held at Hingston Hall, capacity of 400 people, sold out, rich array of uh, exhibitors, sponsors, and contributors, kicked off really, really nicely. I almost had goosebumps how well that the start kicked off with um, Monty Barlow, CEO of Cambridge Consultants, giving us a kind of uh, perspective a te- from a technology point of view of how the Cambridge network works from a technology point of view and a collaboration point of view and how so his philosophy as as the new ceo of cambridge consultants about bringing forward uh, technology advancements and some of them can be brought forward and he had some interesting examples of where they've done that including i think recording a whole load of uh, the whole of wikipedia on dna yes don't ask me how you do that i've no idea uh, but it sounds really impressive Telecoms industry will know he's chairman of the GSMA, which is the Mobile Industry uh, International Group, uh, CTO of Telefonica and O2, and most latterly to the Department of International Trade as their chief science uh, advisor. Wow. Um, so he gave, I think, quite an interesting industry governmental policy perspective on some of the things we need to look at around trade and also a topic that uh, 
was repeated a number of times on on all three of the core days, which was around talent and um, the scarcity thereof and how to develop it. <clears throat> and as he pointed out, it's not just about postdocs from the university. We also need technical apprentices. Uh, we need, in fact, all sorts of people who work in tech, marketing, sales, administration, logistics, you name it, because there's huge growth throughout the region, particularly we're talking about um, uh, Cambridge, but wider still, that's, that's pulling it in. So I think those, that, that was a really great start on day one. We then had a number of uh, sessions where we had interviews with uh, entrepreneurs that, if you like, got to got to a certain stage of yeah. their careers and their journeys, and they talked us through their experiences. And we had the the startups with the Innovation Alley showing some of the future technologies coming through. And then, as I mentioned, Patrick Pichet um, kind of brought the house down at the end of the day um, with his his uh, interview. Believe it or not, we had um, on day two, we had two different television crews from the BBC arriving. Wow. Uh, you know, I worked for a large company for about nearly 40, uh, 20, so nearly 30 years. Um, and I know how large companies can somehow not get joined up, but there were actually two crews, one from Look East. Um, uh, and I never found out who the other lot were from. Maybe click online or something like that, I bet you. Oh, no, uh, goodness knows. Anyway, so they 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 broadcast something, I believe, on on Friday evening and and on over the weekend a longer piece. Um, and incidentally, they also had a we had an interview. They requested an interview, a different part of the BBC, BBC News, oh. for an early morning session on Thursday morning about AI. And uh, Professor Gina Neff, who's a professor of technology and democracy, I think is if I'm not mistaken. She did that interview for us, referencing Cambridge Tech Week, but also AI, which uh, is very topical right now, and was very present on day one of the conference. We had a fantastic panel talking us through some of the the technical, but most importantly, the ethical questions. And it was really nice to see there wasn't agreement on the panel. You know, there yeah. wasn't a lot of uh, I agree with him or I agree with her. No, there was some disagreement, which I think is always much more engaging. And it's, it's not surprising because it's it's a challenging area for us all to get our heads around. Day two, we had a fantastic start to the day. And the, the aforementioned uh, Professor Gina Neff interviewed uh, a lady, Meredith, I'm going to mangle her name now, Broussard, I think her name is, uh, who's a professor from New York. And they were talking about the whole subject of unconscious bias within technology. And I'd never really thought about this. But this lady has uh, written a book about it and uh, thought very deeply about it. You know, all, all this tech, this AI, these algorithms, they get defined by somebody. Yeah. They don't that themselves yet. Not yet, no. Um, no, not yet. So if, if in creating an algorithm, you automatically, consciously or unconsciously put in some sort of bias, then that's going to perpetuate bias. So yeah. putting it into, into real terms... If you're, uh, I don't know, uh, mortgage lenders and you've got some algorithms about what sort of people will qualify for what sort of mortgage and you look at things like where they went to school or what what, what their parents' careers are or what, what postcode they live in, then that will undoubtedly affect the propensity to offer a mortgage. So, you know, she was, ex and, and there's many more examples. So she was exploring, well, is that the right set of parameters and who defines those? And then how do, how do people who are less fortunate get onto that kind of ladder? So re really thought-provoking session. We had um, a really good discussion on semiconductors. Yes. Panel there, one of the 
one of the technologies we obviously Cambridge Silicon Fen is is famous for. Mm. And again, something else that's been in, in the headlights this year with the uh, long-awaited government strategy on semiconductor, <laughs> which was pointed out a number of times. And then we had um, Raj, who's the VP of Samsung, ex-CSR. This company was taken over by uh, Samsung, yeah. major players in, in the region. And then at the other end, we had some uh, younger companies, and we had Simon Thomas, the CEO of Paragraph, who seems to be a perennial uh, invitee to BBC Radio 4 uh, <laughs> when he, he sort of comes on and has a rant about um, the government strategy or lack of it uh, to invest and support the semiconductor industry. And then finally, we had Jamie Urquhart, who's, again, well-known, also been on BBC Radio 4 in the mornings, and a co-founder of ARM, the distinguished career at Arm and other companies, and um, now a mover and shaker and commentator and mentor and all sorts of things. So quite a lively debate between them, from the kind of the established to the new boys and the and um, some perspectives around where the government and the industry should go. And these these um, these aren't the sort of people you just collect from a bus stop and drag into the hall. You've you've clearly had a very clear idea about who you wanted, and they and got them. No, I mean, we had some some really good speakers there. We had a lady called Sharon Dagan. Uh, again, I'll probably mangled her name, for which I apologise if she's listening, from Oxford Algorithms. Yes, we did allow people in from Oxford. Um, she she went through her, her innovation journey as an entrepreneur. And again, she was really uh, forthright, really straightforward and honest about her journey, about the, the successes and also... The challenges and and honestly where she said she made mistakes yeah and including when she started out with her first company where she had the best product in this new area uh, to do with a mobile application but she didn't have the best sales approach and she was outsold or a company was outsold and once one company i think it was vodafone took the competitor's product everybody did and fundamentally they were they were out of business really yeah and she's learned from that and she said you know product doesn't sell itself and, uh, you know, engineers have got to get used to the fact that they need people to help them. Sometimes they need people to help them communicate the product and, and sell it and yeah. market it. She was also extremely honest about hiring the right people. This, this, is, all, this is all online, so I'm not saying anything that anybody wouldn't, won't hear who signed up. But she, the guy said, have you got any uh, things that you'd learned from, any mistakes you made? Oh, yes, hiring, really difficult. So I once had this chap. I hired him for VP of products. He was useless. <laughs> bear in mind there's people in the room and it's streaming online i'm thinking oh i hope this chap's not listening it was useless uh but then she conceded that it was possibly possibly 50 percent her fault because she put him in the wrong job yeah and then then she said but then i moved into create the job of vp of marketing and it was fantastic <laughs> so it's all well that ends well yeah so that was sort of day two and you know a real vibrancy around the conference center uh, lots of serendipitous meetings and introductions. And I think a lot of the exhibitors and sponsors were pretty pleased with the people they met um, and the opportunities to have further conversations, whether it's collaborate technology collaborations or commercial opportunities and so forth. Well, social media was buzzing. Um, yeah. Oh, crikey. Yeah, it was on fire. Yeah. If, if social media can be on fire, it, it, was, on it fire. was ablaze. And, and day three was, I mean, a fantastic yeah. series of debates the one I saw on the metaverse, lo and behold, on Sunday, the Sunday after Cambridge Tech Week, there's a piece in the Observer saying, giving the eulogy for the the uh, the Zuck, Zuckerverse, the the um, 
Mark Zuckerberg version of the metaverse, which itself was a contentious issue. But for the morning session, tell us about the morning of the big debate, which is going back to AI, isn't it? Well, indeed. And um, we I guess we were quite brave in that we'd had two days of conference in Hingston Hall, which is on the genome campus outside of Cambridge near Duxford. Great conference centre, great venue. But then after two days, and it takes a fair bit of organising, we were going to up sticks and move to a completely different venue in the centre of Cambridge, the, the Cambridge Union debating chamber, you know, a historic building, completely different environment, and um, started again. <laughs> and um, and I was really, really pleased with it. I mean, it's, if you if if your listeners haven't been there, it's a bit like a mini House of Commons. It certainly quite is quite a different environment. A really great atmosphere, and to have a professional uh, moderator in, in the form of Christian Gurumurti uh, in the morning to kind of lead us through the debate. He facilitated or moderated. I call it a BBC Question Time type format. Yeah, and so we had a great panel of uh, contributors on 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 stage, if you like. But I was so pleased that there was just so many contributions from the floor, and I don't know if it's something to do with the the venue and the environment, or uh, the moderator. But you know, sometimes you can go to these events and you say, "Well, are there any questions?" and sort of tumbleweed sort of flows yeah. through the floor, and you know, <laughs> everybody embarrassed and looks at their feet. Uh, uh, but no, there was just lots of it, and I, I can only conclude that people in Cambridge like to hear the sound of their own their own voice. That's why I was there. <laughs> but really, really, and very, very interesting uh, contributions from some quite knowledgeable people, very knowledgeable people, you know, some academics and technologists. Um, so that that went really well, and then we we flipped over to quite a different moderator in, in the form of a chap called uh, Mike Butcher. <clears throat> yeah, who's um, editor at large for TechCrunch. And uh, yeah, I think probably a, a kind of a provoco dis- disruptor type of guy. Yes. And um, we had our first of our debates around AI. And I just thought that was priceless, absolutely priceless, and really thought provoking contributions. With these debates, we had two proponents of a, a motion, um, two opponents, and both would get the chance to speak. And then we'd also have contributions from the floor. And uh, the motion there was uh, AI will will kill the human race, um, which I don't know if I'm pleased or or, or not. But anyway, the, we, we took a vote and we went through the eye lobby and the nays lobby, respectively. And I can tell you, I can reveal that um, the audience felt that AI will not kill the human race. So well, that's whether good. we're just being complacent, <laughs> whether we're complacent or whether we, we should uh, be relieved, I don't know. We then had a kind of a, a, a break in proceedings, and I had the, the great pleasure to introduce two people that, as I said at the time, probably need no introduction to that audience. One was David Cleveley, a longtime luminary of the Cambridge tech scene. There's so many companies and organizations and network groups that he's he's founded, um, contributing to important reports about Cambridge and Peterborough, economic um, situation in, in, in the area. And... Um, things he's done for government. But he's also uh, was the original chairman of Raspberry Pi, yeah. which was uh, why we got him uh, to sit alongside Eben Upton, the founder and CEO of uh, Raspberry Pi. Raspberry Pi bringing the, um, the technology, the low-cost uh, technology, be made available to, particularly to young people, mm. to play with, to learn about computers. Yeah. And... Um, you, know, you can get you can get a Raspberry Pi 
chipboard thing for you know about thirty dollars or something these days, um, and it was really fascinating to hear them talk about what was the philosophy behind it. You know when you know retail products are you know many many more times the cost of that. Yeah, and and also packaged in a way. I mean Apple is just fantastic at packaging the user experience to make it so simple and all the rest of it, which is great. But it does have a risk of uh, de-skilling people from actually playing with the tech and um yes. you know, the initiative behind it really was around making exposing that technology to particularly to to children school children youth teenagers um to get them to play with it and um you know i guess it's all evan talked about his early days of playing with uh, acorn computers and and so forth uh again from from cambridge yeah so um that 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 for me was a personal highlight. I really enjoyed listening to that debate or that discussion that they had. And then we had the um, the final debate again, the same format uh, that that you you saw, Mike, around yeah. the um, metaverse. Is it dead? Or actually, I think the motion was the metaverse is dead. Yes, it was. That was the um, motion. Actually, I can't remember what the answer was. was... We found it. I think we found it alive. Yeah, it's although... largely alive. Although I think you, on both of us, both, both uh, I, I, we were on the, uh, no, pretty dead. But then I think what was interesting about that was that the debate centred around, well, what are we, what do we mean by metaverse? Uh, which might have been a, the better, a better motion. Well, you know, this house doesn't really know what the, hasn't really decided what the metaverse is. But uh, no, it was, that was fascinating stuff. And as I say, uh, the Observer sort of followed that up with its own take on the, uh, on, on the question on, on the Sunday morning, which is, uh, was uh, leading the, the tech charts on the the Guardian website for some days after after that. So it it really was a, f- a absolutely fascinating afternoon, and I only caught a little snippet of it. But um, but yeah, uh, and uh, and and Friday was a real showcase for for international guests. So I'm really pleased that we had I think about a hundred uh, delegates from from outside the UK, and um, you know we worked hard to bring interesting delegates from outside of Cambridge, one of the, the rest of the uh, the, the Anglia, East Anglia region and across UK to, to join us, uh, but also international because, um, you know, we know that technology is a, a sector that relies on collaboration and all the answers are not in um, to be held in the UK, let alone in Cambridge um, or the, the East, Eastern region. And um, we need to reach out, we need to collaborate. And it was just great to have uh, visitors from Latin America, from Asia, from Europe, um, and give them a taste of what uh, what the region and Cambridge can do. And if they're thinking of investing or collaborating or relocating, then introducing them to people who can who can help with that. One thing I, you, you were talking about sort of the, the the branding in terms of with Apple, but in terms of the Cambridge Tech Week branding, that was a triumph because. You automatically knew where you were. You knew where you were going. I mean, the the debating union, it was all outside. You knew precisely uh, where to go. And there was just this beautiful uh, green and blue um, logo running throughout. It was it was tremendous. Yeah, I must admit, I I have to thank Kirsten and uh, and Caroline Hyde of Cambridge Enterprise and Kirsten, who works with Cambridge Enterprise. Um, We worked on, you know, what we wanted from. How are we going to communicate this? You know, it's a blank sheet of paper we started with. Mm. And um, you know, what is this thing? And and you know, like your commentator said to you, you know, could could Cambridge possibly pull off such a thing? Um, and you know, we talked about the values, the the 
objectives, the content, the sort of things we wanted to cover, and how we wanted to project it. But it really, the whole project really came to life once we had a visual identity. Yeah. It is crazy, really, mm. because nothing had changed Friday to the Monday. But when on the Monday, when we had a kind of a, a palette of colors to use, the, the sort of the Cambridge teal, a purple, a green, it really came to life. And I, I thought it was very professionally done and yeah. um, did help us dress the uh, the venues. Um, it was on the social media. It was on the collateral, the programs, even the lanyards. And I tell you what I really liked. There were some people who'd been to all all events. And by Friday, it was a bit like Glastonbury. They were collecting all of their, yes. their, <laughs> their tickets all on one, one lanyard, which I thought that was, that was lovely. Fantastic. Um, I suppose the other, the last thing I'd like, would like to call out about the week, which I was pleased about, which was the uh, creation or encouragement of nearly thirty fringe events, which yes. we call conversations. And um, you know, as an organising committee, we really had to focus on two days of conference and the big debate, and everything else that goes around that. But we wanted this to be um, something for the whole community to get involved in, and we wanted to provide a platform for listing advertising their events and we had from nothing we had you know as i say nearly 30 events everything from as i mentioned uh, access sort of tasters for children and young people to get involved in in tech some sort of coding taster days we had startup uh, people put on startup boot camps and um, sessions on how to do pr for a new company there were um, networking events mm-hmm. uh, most evenings. I met you at one of them, Mike. Indeed. And you know, as we know, with 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 these sorts of things, it's the networking that's as valuable as as the content. Oh yes. Um, you know, walking, and so th- that was really nice. But I think we've only scratched the surface. We have really, and um, we're just starting to think about what we do next year. But uh, say... one message for your listeners: as and when we announce what that is, then I'm sure we'll have platform for advertising fringe events and conversations and i really encourage people to think about um oh we were thinking of having something around then why don't we move it to that week why don't we uh, think about doing something even if we hadn't you know maybe we've got some particular interest group or some tech discussions we want to have or something we want to put on for the local community um reaching out beyond the technocrati if you like um to um you know engage with the wider uh community not just in central cambridge but in in the area around and maybe even across the region well i'm in uh, eastern promise is in uh for whatever we can do to help and what one thing i said when is the first meeting for cambridge tech week 2024 or are you still uh trying to get your head around 2023 well we're we're having a um the steering group is sent out a uh, doodle poll for when we're going to have our first face-to-face meeting because most of our meetings have been um, virtual recently uh, but we're going to meet face-to-face and say okay how was that for you and what do we do now um, we're giving Rachel the opportunity to uh, put a wet towel over her head and, and spend a week with the kids this week and um, then you know we'll let the dust settle and and we'll we'll be meeting within May to start thinking about next year. That's Rachel Kerr, uh, who has been an absolute wonder 
in driving this forward. And I saw her everywhere, everywhere. Just Rachel smile. She never lost the smile, never lost the enthusiasm. Although Thursday afternoon, she's like, I'm, I'm going to go home now. I'm just, I'm, I'm not sticking around for a, for a tipple. I'm going home, which I, I couldn't blame her for. But Chris, that, where do people go? to find uh, you know, the footage, the recordings of what they may have missed during Cambridge Tech Week? I'm sure we're going to put together a montage. Uh, attendees will get, you know, if they want to, they can watch the whole three days. Um, but we'll, we'll put together a montage, which I'm sure will be available on the cambridgetechweek.co.uk website in due course. Not there just yet. Fantastic. Um, we'll you can follow... Eye. You can follow us on LinkedIn and then more news will come out from there. More news will come. Chris, what a pleasure. What a fantastic week it was. And it was, uh, you know, I, whenever we get the date, my diary will be, will be will be cleared for Cambridge Tech Week. There were people from across the region. From I saw from posts from Nor- people from Norwich, from Suffolk, Norfolk, everywhere. Just so pleased to be part of it. It was a triumph for Cambridge, a triumph for the region, triumph for the UK. Thank you so much uh, for being with us this morning and just for, for Cambridge Tech Week. Oh, thank you, Mike. And I do appreciate your support uh, with the My Eastern pleasure. Promise. Uh, your, your enthusiasm and your uh, energy is unboundless. And I uh, really just appreciate your support. And um, it's my pleasure. Look forward to seeing everybody there next year. Attending Cambridge Tech Week has been a singular pleasure. And I truly hope Eastern Promise can get even more involved next year. If that's something you'd like to see and be part of, then please do get in touch. My email address is mike at easternpromise.site or you can contact me through our website, easternpromise.org.uk. Now, if you weren't able to attend Cambridge Tech Week, then all is not lost, because there's another opportunity to get to grips with the Cambridge ecosystem. On the 14th of June, it's Cambridge Wide Open Day, organised by O2H Cowork Labs. Cambridge Wide Open Day sees a wide expanse of the biggest, brightest and best names in the Cambridge ecosystem open their doors to the public between 11am and 3pm. As if that wasn't enough, there's a garden party reception at the O2H Cowork Labs at Hawkston House on the Mill SciTech Park from 4pm until 9pm. There's a full list of participating venues at the Wide Open Day website, cambridgewideopenday.com. And if you want your venue to feature on the Eastern Promise podcast, then email me at mike at easternpromise.site or through our website, easternpromise.org.uk. Housing is currently the hottest of hot-button issues once again, and in dire need of calm, reasoned and well-evidenced discussion. Thankfully, that has now been provided by the East of England Local Government Association, a membership body which represents the region's 50 councils, and who followed up their recent progress report on levelling up in the East of England with a landmark study into the state of the region's housing. 
the East of England LGA invited Eastern Promise to come to their offices in Bury St Edmunds and hear more about the report, entitled Opening the Door. Good quality, available and affordable housing in the East of England. Bury St Edmunds, Wednesday. I'm here with gentlemen. Introduce yourself. Hi Mike, Adam Thorpe, Head of Policy and Programmes at the East of England Local Government Association. Uh, and I'm Matthew Stewart, I'm Policy and Programmes Manager at the same place. We are here uh, to discuss quite a landmark report that was a response in part to the feedback from the, the levelling up report that you guys put out that's, that got a lot of coverage. The APPG took that to ministers and, and campaigned upon its contents. It's a really authoritative report. Uh, incredibly detailed with a, with a really strong body of evidence. And this housing report is very much of the same ilk. Can I just start with Matthew? Of course. And ask you to give me a bit of uh, background as to why the report exists, what you're hoping it to achieve, and then perhaps we'll get into with Adam as well. We'll, we'll come on to sort of the meat of, uh, of what the report says and what we hope will come from it. Matthew. Well, in, in simple terms, the report exists because, um, well, our, our councillors, our members, uh, were increasingly interested in the area of housing and planning uh, as areas of policy. They'd raised it with us uh, through our engagement with them. We hold regular panel meetings, we call them, with leaders and uh, portfolio holders across the region. And increasingly, they were talking about housing and planning as something they really wanted to keep an eye on. So we increasingly started researching in this area, started looking more and more at the numbers and the figures. And the more we looked at it, the more complex the area of policy really started to be and look like. It, it is a fantastically complicated area with, with multiple different things feeding into one another and multiple different sort of policy areas that are sort of partially involved in it. If there's a Venn diagram, it's basically just a spider's web. So Following on from that, we decided to uh, do a report of that sort of thing. We sort of looked at maybe maybe this is more than just uh, some internal reporting. Maybe this is more than just sort of taking a look at the statistics ourselves. Maybe we need to push this as a part of a wider package of advocacy on behalf of the East of England and really set out where the East of England is, you know, what we're doing currently, what are sort of set out the scale of the issues that are at play here, set out what the barriers are. In, within our region to uh, addressing those issues with regards to housing. And then uh, just a few suggestions as to how we can fix those barriers. How can we approach those barriers? How can we make sure that housing is delivered in our region uh, in, in a much sort of better way? Uh, and so, as the housing report is, hopefully that it, it, it goes some way towards addressing that. So, Adam, could you um, perhaps go through for us where the balance stands in the report? We talked about this before we came on the balance between what we have, the power we have in this region to get inventive, get creative uh, in the, the outcomes. Because you, you, you've produced in the report, and I, uh, particularly in the both the executive summary and the back, a really uh, interesting list of recommendations and outcomes uh, that you're seeking. We all should be seeking, frankly. Uh, and I want to get into those and talk about those in more depth in a second. But I just want to get a sense from you, the balance between what we can do now in our region, where we have the levers in, in our hands and we can pull them, uh, if, if we so desire, if we have the will, and what is requiring us to lobby our government in, in, in Whitehall? Sure, yeah, so I think there's a certain amount for sure that we can look at um, between our councils internally as a region to increase house building. And 
you ask if there is the will. Well, there definitely is the will. Councils want to do this. Councils know that there's a massive shortage in housing and it's one of the biggest challenges faced in our region. So the will is certainly there and councils are working as hard as they possibly can to get more houses built. I think there's something in the region of 236,000 planning permissions yeah. out there in 2022 that have not yet been built. So this kind of narrative that persists at times around the planning system being the problem and councils uh, having too much red tape, red tape with their planning application processes isn't really the case. The planning permission is there and the, the will is there to, to build more. But there's all sorts of issues affecting councils around their budgets, I think. Planning department budgets in our region alone shrunk by approximately 20% between 2010 and 2021. So that means councils don't have the resources and the capacity that they really require to push forward the house building at the rate it needs to be created. But there are also issues around land banking of developers holding on to land because of the, the market situation that exists around supply and demand um, and the need for them to, to, to keep prices a bit higher. Coming up with something like a local plan, is a tremendously difficult experience, which you go into in this report. It's definitely, it's, it's, it's really, and anyone who, I mean, I remember the joint call strategy, Norwich City Council, South Norfolk Council, Broadland District Council. Uh, and, you know, you, you have all these meetings attended by a planning inspector where only the dedicated and those who are employed to be there or elected to be there are there. Yeah. So, you know, you, you're right off starting with the voice of the, uh, the, the, the those who, who need to make the case and those who want to see the whole thing brought to a screeching halt, <laughs> which is, you know, and, and, and we, we enter the kind of the weird where, where you've got the site specific documents, which are basically a list of where it's available and it's politically acceptable, mm -hmm. not necessarily where the market wants to move it. Yeah. But stepping down from this magnificent tie horse that I appear to have mounted. There is, in here, I think, the, the beginnings of hope and optimism, which I want to kind of tease out from you. I mean, the, the numbers in, you know, are stark in terms of where the shortfall is, where the East of England is 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 not in... And <laughs> you're really straining against my, my, my uh, no negativity policies. Um, not optimal, I think is what I'd say. Um, but talk, looking at this case study, you talked about planning budgets, you talked about the demands on planning officers, and you know, we, you were already seeing the beginnings of, of across the region, joint services, which is obviously pooling of talent, pooling of resource in planning departments. You bring uh, up an example in the document of the uh, Association of South Essex Local Authorities and Home England, Homes England. Can I invite one of you, Matt, you're pointing at, he's the man, to, to, to lead off and, and tell us more about what that is, how it's working, and, and perhaps how that model uh, can shine a light for the rest of the region. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, Acela is a really interesting case study. It's a, a combination of local authorities in South Essex. Uh, for, for those uh, listening who uh, don't, aren't necessarily familiar with Acela, that is short for the Association of South Essex Local Authorities. You know, they're, they're working together to try and boost housing delivery in their area and see what they can do uh, as local authorities to try and reduce the barriers to those house, uh, that home building. Uh, in a really constructive way, I feel. And this, this is uh, something that operates on quite a high level, but also on a slightly more procedural and um, uh, officer-based level as well, which I think is really, really important. It's good to have both of those levels. You don't necessarily just want the high level 
talking can, you know, that's incredibly valuable for cooperation purposes, but it can lead sometimes to, you know, sort of uh, things becoming mired and sort of, you know, discussion about nice to haves. Whereas this, I believe, also has uh, this, the, the potential to really develop some uh, change on the ground, which I think is really, really fantastic to hear. Uh, I attended one of the more recent meetings and they were talking about how to uh, get housing projects unstuck in their area by talking to um, uh, you know, social home housing providers, housing associations, uh, and how they could potentially use their expertise as housing developers to bolster what local authorities are doing in their region as well. Because a lot of these the local authorities, we have experience in, in dealing with housing and planning and things like that, but not as much as we perhaps used to in the past. And so having a housing developer on side who shares those sorts of uh, public-minded values is very, very useful to have uh, as, as someone who can offer advice, someone who can offer financial support potentially in some cases where it's possible for them to do so. I mean, obviously housing associations, you know, they've got a bottom line, they do have to you know, look after that at the end of the day. No one's expecting them to do it for free, but it's, it's, um, it's a really interesting approach to really sort of, uh, you know, taking these systems that are, you know, these projects that are completely log jams where no one can move, you know, they're completely stuck and potentially just applying a bit of grease to the wheels and just making things move a little bit smoother. And I think that really can be a bit of a barrier in the system at the moment is sort of things can get seized up quite quickly and then there are delays and then there are longer delays. Whereas, you know, reducing the friction, I think is very, very valuable. I think a seller, it's a really promising uh, approach to dealing with that. And obviously, as you said before, they're also in conversations with Home England, which is really great to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, only Manchester, I believe, has, has that sort of access to home, uh, Homes England in the same way that a seller does. Uh, indeed, at the meeting I was at, the representative of Homes England was there. Um, had a wonderful chat with her about the rugby. It was lovely, <laughs> um, and uh, it was so. It was um, it, yeah. It was really, really good to see that uh, that that agency taking this body seriously, quite rightly, as a way of dealing with the housing problems that are potentially being faced by the region. And I just want to come on briefly because people will be shouting at the uh, at their podcast provider of choice <laughs> if I don't mention nutrient neutrality, yes. which in handily. Mentioning Norfolk again, uh, there's a, a range of local authorities setting up a venture, joint venture with Anglian Water, that's South Norfolk, Norwich, mm. Broadland, Breckland, North Norfolk. Um, could I invite one of you to, to kick off and tell me how that's working? Uh, describe the scheme for those who haven't heard of it. And, uh, so, uh, I mean, for, for, there's many people, and if you're in the housing world, you're probably aware of this already, but there are, there are um, issues with regards to house building in Norfolk, or at least some, the majority of the districts in Norfolk, around uh, making sure that pollutants don't end up in the river, because if these pollutants end up in the river, you end up with uh, algae blooms, and you end up with a detriment to wildlife, and it, 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 it's a very worthy goal, you know, we, do, we don't want polluted rivers, we want you know, nice and clean, pristine waters for our future, especially with Norfolk, where so much of their tourism yeah. relies on that, but mm -hmm. we, we, you know, that's that's completely fair. However, it means that in order for any housing to go forward, they need to prove that they will be neutral with regards to these pollutant off-runs. That has caused a massive problem in Norfolk where you know, thousands of homes have had to just been paused because you know, th th there's no clear way for them to go forward because they can't prove that they're going to be neutral uh, neutral neutrality uh, or be able to be neutral. neutral, neutral. Yeah. Yes, a bit of a word mouthful. Um, and so uh, what, what uh, I believe someone from our, our talent bank here at Ilga uh, is, is working with the local authorities there and, and Anglia Water. Uh, they are looking to create a, a really interesting uh, system whereby the local authorities do the uh, neutrality bit preemptively almost, you know, building the wetlands, 
making sure that the waters are recycled and, and, and in good health. And then what they can do is, ha having front-loaded all of that work, they could then go to local authority, well, no, they can go to planners, sorry, and go, well, we've done this for you, so you don't have to worry about this in your, in your developments, but what we're going to need is just, you know, and you can buy that reassurance from us. If you want to do it yourselves, that's still fine. You know, if you want to make, build your own wetlands, that's absolutely fine by us. But especially for smaller developers that might struggle to do that sort of environmental work, it's really valuable that they can just turn to, you know, the local authority in question, or this body in particular, Norfolk Environmental Credits, they can go to this body and say, can we purchase some credits that say that the, the work has been done, basically. Mm, yeah. And that will hopefully get the house building moving again. And that's, that'll be really important for the people of Norfolk. In terms of training, in terms of getting those planners into local government offices, uh, what, Adam, uh, is, what role is the talent, can the talent bank play what is the outcome you want to see that the, the, out the report is calling for? So in the short term, our talent bank is a great opportunity for councils who are struggling with capacity to, to build a bit of short-term capacity in their teams and, and help out with specific projects and, and programmes regarding planning. So that's kind of a, a short-term outcome. We've got all sorts of associates on the talent bank with years and years of experience in planning departments. So that opportunity is there. I think in the longer term, we can look at opportunities around bringing together a, a team of associates with the knowledge on how to run a planning department successfully in terms of recruiting, uh, retaining and training the right colleagues um, for the right teams. Build a team together to look at how this situation could be improved at the regional scale. I think when councils are looking at this issue individually with their own teams, there's bound to be lots of poaching going on there's bound to be difficulties around capacity around resources but i think if our member councils across the east of england work together on the issue which a number of them are for, for specific geographies we can achieve much more and we can hopefully start to um can hopefully start to to, to build the teams we need in our planning departments mm -hmm. but I, I do think there is a support from government needed here councils just frankly haven't got the money they need to pay planners the, the salaries that are going to keep them in their teams and not jump across to the private sector. So there's a whole thing around finances and councils do just need more money from the government to be able to pay, pay planners what, what they require. But I think there is, at the national scale, a strategy, a robust and coherent strategy that's needed from government around this crisis in the planning workforce and what can be done to really make it an appealing profession. Well, I was just, I was just actually um, pondering my, uh, on, on the idea that is there something that could be constructed around trainee planners, giving them that experience early doors? Uh, call it an apprenticeship, I, mm. you know, um, but if you're studying to be a planner and, and you know, you, you've got that opportunity to gain that first-hand experience, You've got that energy as well, and that enthusiasm that, that a thousand, a thousand <laughs> public meetings where you're being shouted at um, haven't quite eroded yet. Um, because I mean, the, the report does talk about how it's a perception thing for the mm. public as well. That yeah. you know, your planner planning officers are not there to dump on you what you don't want. They're there to craft what's needed in the way that suits as many interests as possible, and it's bloody hard. <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've personally made planners' lives hard, planners' lives more difficult 
over 15 years. <laughs> and I just took no pleasure in it. It is very, very difficult. If people are poaching from the top, it's a bit like the, the, the bit in the Untouchables, you know, if they're poaching the apples from the tree, you know, from the barrel, let's go and get them first from the tree. Mm. So is, is there something that could, could come from that? Yeah, certainly. I think there's all sorts of options that we could look into around different, tra different training programs. I think you're right that the kind of, the current routine for planners is just far too long, far too onerous and is really holding people back from entering the profession when they may have, you know, that's kind of a, a, a different route in. So apprenticeships, T levels, um, you know, more kind of vocational routes into planning, I think would definitely be one option. I do think there's some kind of signs of improvement from government in recent documents from government around reforming the planning system. There's a lot of talk of bringing the planning system into the 21st century and using technology using digital solutions in a way that really makes the engagement a lot easier mm. for the communities and residents when getting involved mm. in sort of planning processes but hopefully and, and possibly could also make it a more enjoyable situation for <laughs> for those actually working in the system you brilliantly have preempted my next uh, thing i wanted to raise with you which is about community engagement mm. which the dreaded early evening public meeting mm. where, you know, poor planners go to be harangued um, <laughs> by angry residents, but certainly in rural areas anyway, um, which is not how it should be. And the kind of technology you're seeing coming on, on stream now in architecture, we're talking about augmented reality. And I'm interested to what you think. I mean, this is, this is, this is difficult because you don't want on the one hand to be reliant on industry because, look, I haven't got the budget you know to buy loads of ar headsets <laughs> but on this by the same token you don't want to say oh you're just doing that because you know they, they've paid for it anyway uh, but for someone to say look put these on look at the field and you'll have an idea of what it will look like yeah. oh yeah that's not so bad it's also and I'm, I'll, I'll come to matt then, then then to you adam it's about is it's about getting over to people yes you love where you live but people are living longer. Housing stock is not changing hands at the rate it once did. And, you know, if you want to continue to have a pub and a nice village shop, if you've got those things, and a village hall that doesn't, you know, die on its ass because no one's using it. And, you know, if you want to have a, a bus that stops in your village, I'm sorry, but there's only one answer. And it's how, Matt, do you think we can get that across in a way that... <clears throat> that is both compassionate, empathic, but also effective. Well, ab absolutely. I think, I think that really is sort of cuts the heart of the matter of trying to get the, that, that community consent for these sorts of things. I mean, as you were saying earlier, it's very easy to, to uh, get, get angry at the poor planning officers. Uh, I, I, I've made it a mission to, to go buy them some brownies or something at the next, <laughs> next one of these evening meetings we find. Your absolutely. luck's in, planners. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I owe you all collectively some brownies. Um, anyway, but so, I mean, anything that could, could help with that public perception, I think would be really, really useful. In fact, uh, in the uh, latest consultation from the National Planning Policy Framework, I won't get too into the weeds, I promise you, but one of the things that was raised was about uh, that developers need to be able to provide more detailed drawings uh, and, and examples of what the buildings are going to look like once they're done, like you know, examples of the kind of materials they're going to be using, much more accurate drawings, that sort of thing. So I think that perception point is a really important one. And if, if alternate, uh, you know, alter, alternate reality, virtual reality can be used to give that example, then you know, the, all, all more power to them if they can use that to persuade the public. 
then that's absolutely fine. I, mean, I, guess, I guess there's a question about uh, how available that technology is for smaller housing developers versus larger housing mm-hmm. developers. Um, but at, at the same time, I think, you know, I think there is something to be said about the exposure point. But it is incredibly important to get this point across. I think if, if for no other reason, I think it's really, really important to note that, you know, the key workers that you know services rely on, they need somewhere to, to, to live, uh, you know, ultimately. You know, teachers, nurses, mm-hmm. doctors, these, these souls require somewhere to live. And it's not even necessarily even necessarily about house prices, especially in more rural areas. It is just simply where, where are they going to live? Are they going to have to bus in from the, the next market town along? That sort of thing. And I think we can all agree with all, you know, we, we like the idea of our, our local doctor. I love my local doctor. Uh, I mean, I live in central Ipswich, but, you know, I really, you know, I like being able to walk down the road and he's, you know, he's there. Um, and that, that's, that's a really valuable thing that people, I think, really appreciate. And so saying to them, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is how we facilitate that. By building these houses, we are enabling the next you know, new people to come in. We are enabling these key workers to settle down. We're helping to boost the local economy so that more public services can be provided, better public services can be provided. <clears throat> and I do appreciate where some of the reluctance comes from. I have a few friends of mine who live. I, I won't name where. I don't want to. Don't want to get into. Yeah, no names, no packages. Will not be named. But um, they will. So they they, they were they were talk, complaining about a, a housing development near where they lived, and they said, "I've got nothing necessarily wrong about the houses going up. Like that, that's fine, more the merrier." But you know, I'm already struggling to get a you know an appointment with the GP. I'm already you know struggling. The roads are gridlocked uh, at rush hour already. And they're planning on putting a few thousand more homes in, and and so I, I can see where those concerns come from, um, and why I'm, I'm sort of glad to see that the, some of the new infrastructure levy stuff that that's coming out, you know, it, it's talking about governments being able to borrow against predicted future funds to enable them to build that infrastructure. Um, I mean, and we can have a discussion about whether you know more needs to be done, but I, I think that that is an important part of the puzzle. Is it's not just saying that it will be beautiful, which I think is. You know that would have to be desirable. I'd, I'd love you know look at it and see. Oh, this doesn't look so bad. I think absolutely it's got to be a part of it. No one wants ugly homes. Uh, although I'm I'm a fan of brutalism very secretly. So <laughs> I know no one here will share my tastes, but I love a bit of concrete me. Um, but that's 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 just me. I appreciate most people have very different tastes, and that's absolutely fine. But I think well, yeah. uh, again that you raise the point that beauty being in the eye of the beholder, and mm. this is again I, I do like harking back to my experience. Um, been in public meetings where. The local community are not ill-disposed, but concerned, which is probably, uh, these days, the optimum you can hope for. And the map gets rolled out of what's proposed, and the developer and representative goes, oh, those ones are affordable, mm. but they're near, they're near us. We've got to go somewhere. And there's that kind of concern that surrounds where affordable housing goes. But as the report makes absolutely clear, that need is is desperate and growing. I was lucky when I was I, I was still in the days of one hundred percent mortgages. Uh, I I got in just at the right time. Lucky me. But lots of people are not lucky, and so they need access to affordable rents and affordable housing. How do we, Adam? Do you think can Ilga help? Perhaps can thread that needle uh, in terms of we've got to build them. They've got to go somewhere but they are often the most greeted with the most apprehension because there's a, a, a kind of a preconceived idea of the kind of people who are going to go in there, which I think is, is a very old hat and, and, and tired stereotype. Over to you. 
Yeah, I think you're right that that general perception does exist in in kind of some communities and some places around around affordable housing and you know the sorts of people that that might bring. So it's our job as a membership body and to support our members, i.e. the councils of the East of England, to better communicate that with their residents, that uh, to to create that myth, to carry out that myth busting, mm. so that that mm. perception mm. is isn't the case as much as possible. I think, you know, there's some people whose minds you'll never change, but I think our councils have strong communications departments and they have the yes. ability to, mm-hmm. to have that dialogue, that conversation with their residents to ensure that those positive messages about affordable housing, about the, about the communities that, that, will be, that will be brought into the area and the positives that that will bring to the, to the local area mm-hmm. and the local community is really strong. I think, you know, whatever way you look at it, we've got a desperate need for genuinely affordable housing. House prices are currently 10.5 times the average salary in the east of England. And that's jumped, that's twice what they were 20 years ago. So we've got a huge affordability crisis in our region and we do just need vast, vast amounts more of generally affordable housing. I think there's lots of factors that that are in play here and I think you know it's a national issue but it is yeah, we, we can't and we person. can't control you guys can't control many of them the councils that you represent can't control many of them <laughs> yeah. you know for, for example the the fact that so many people are dependent on return on the investment they've made in bricks and mortar mm. uh, you know for, for whatever reason um, but do, do you just want to unpack a bit um, the infrastructure aspect of of the report, uh, I invite one of you to 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 lead off on that. Uh, well, so with the infrastructure uh, element of the report, so well, I suppose um, sort of talked a little bit about it already. But with, when it comes to infrastructure and house building, it can be quite tricky because there is a bit of a chicken and egg thing going on. That is always the case, yeah. isn't it, with this thing? You know, that blessed chicken. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, will one of you just get on with it, please? Yeah, absolutely. Why won't one of them just lay a golden egg already? But the, uh, it's, it's, so it's, it's very, very tricky because obviously, you know, the, the public funding required to make good infrastructure comes, comes often after the properties are there yeah. and the council tax is coming in, the tax take is there, so on and so forth. But uh, really, you need the infrastructure there to make the houses worth building and living in in the first place, and let alone for the benefit of the houses that were already there in the first instance, who obviously, as I've said before, understandably a bit uh, suspect about you know, having to share what they perceive as already quite stretched uh, public services with, with potentially more people. It's a tricky one to answer. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's not, not a problem that we take particularly lightly. We know that the... Um, you know, the government is proposing uh, various mag- uh, measures going forward on this, uh, including uh, the infrastructure levy that's potentially coming in. That has its pros and its cons. We're currently talking, there's a consultation out at the moment, actually, um, and we're, we're talking to some of our local authorities about that as a, a particular policy. Some of the pros do seem quite interesting, the ability to borrow against future revenue coming in so you can build the bridges that you need so that you can build the infrastructure that you need you know the the, the internet connectivity incredibly important in the east of england given how rural we are you need that in the ground from day one that that's really really valuable um but uh i mean the downsides potentially there are, some local authorities are a little bit worried that it's going to put off affordable homes it's 
It seems like there's there's almost no give in the system at the moment that doing doing something in one area potentially uh, you know it's robbing people to pay Paul sometimes mm. uh, when when it comes to house building. But I mean that that infrastructure point is is quite important. It's 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 uh, I think it's worth worth repeating. You know that yeah. Uh, these 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 if if we want these neighbourhoods to be efficient and effective and desirable, that infrastructure needs to be there. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Community-led housing, as well as, well as we'll, we'll ask you to talk about community-led housing before we come on to things like developer build-out, empty dwellings, and um, homeless accommodation, sheltered accommodation, uh, and emergency accommodation, because there's been some very interesting work going on there. But talking of interesting work, uh, Norwich City Council, as many listeners will know, have had a passive house scheme, social housing in the middle of the city, which has won all sorts of awards, feted in the national press. And although some critics sort of say, it's, well, it wasn't very economically viable, was it? It's, it's a great example of a council doing the right thing because it's the right thing. And you've got houses that cost nothing to eat. Uh, I've done it again. <laughs> Second time I've done that. And nothing to heat. Mm. Cost nothing to heat. And um, it's, it's, it's really a remarkable example of, of I say, determination and will from a local authority, from one of your member councils. And there may be other examples that I'd love to, to, to visit across the region. Mm. But tell me about uh, community-led housing and, and, and how that can be. We've got things like community land trusts. I know in, uh, particularly in Cambridgeshire, or uh, Swaffham Prior Community Land Trust is one I know. Uh, tell me, Adam, about community-led housing. So I think community-led housing is a really good opportunity for communities to, to really Get, in, get, a, get involved in house building right on the ground and experience the, the whole process from start to finish. And as a result of that, be much kind of more bought into the, this yeah. new housing that, that, that kind of crops up in, in their local community, whereas they might not have been if it was a normal developer-led um, scheme. It's not going to provide us with the, kind of the scale of housing increase that we're after. But I don't think it, it, that's a problem necessarily. It's, it's really about getting community, communities to plan for and build the houses that, that they know is, are required in their local areas. There's an organisation called Eastern Community Homes, which is right. a, a collective of lots of planning officers and people in the industry, both from local government but also private sector, who are involved in community-led housing that brings the, the discipline together for the region, shares best practice, seeks uh, funding from central government to really push forward community-led housing mm. as far and wide as possible um, for the region. So that's a great organisation to look out for. Letchworth, tenure blind since 1911. Mm. But in terms of, to go back to what I was, and I, I think that's just an important point, and, and Letchworth have a model that perhaps we could you know, one of the things I may, may have to do on the show is go and look and, and, and ask people, is this a model, the Garden Village model, where they've got those, they're providing a lot of the services that we want to see? Mm. Um, or, or is that a model because it's so baked in, mm. it can't be repeated? But that's that's not why we're here. Breckland Council, Elm House, recently visited by Princess Royal, who I believe opened it, and, and you know, uh, an award-winning building that's been brought back into use. Mm. From a derelict, an old a former derelict school, as emergency accommodation. Mm. As I say, if there are any other examples of schemes like that you know of, I'd love for you to, to to mention them. But how can you encourage, as Ilga, 
your more schemes to come out for your members. Uh, you know, your convening power to spread best practice. I'm thinking of in particular. Mm. Do you want to take that, Adam? You're 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 indicating you'll take that one. Yeah, so I think that's really core to our role as an organisation is to bring our member authorities together to really share best practice, but also discuss the shared challenges they have. Yes, that's so important. But when you hear of things that you weren't aware of at all, you hear of the art of the impossible and you hear of how colleagues in other councils have managed to get something off the ground, I think it all of a sudden becomes a lot more simple and a lot easier to address as yourself as a council. So I think... We certainly have a role to play and we, we bring councils together all the time, as you'd imagine, to talk about all sorts of different issues across the whole of, of local government. I think for this area specifically, that's something we, we could be doing more and something we'd definitely be happy to explore. Yeah, because it's, it's a very difficult area for the reasons we've kind of, even more so than the reasons we've already alluded to around just general planning. Um, because of the nature of the people who are going in it. We're talking, you know, refugees, we're talking ex-offenders. But the, the point being, to get these people to a point where they are useful, productive members of society, with a future to contribute, to put back into the public purse, it's got to happen. It's got to happen, as, as uncomfortable as that might be for some. Um, but as I say, Breckland have actually grasp the nettle and again if you're listening and you know of another example mike at easternpromise.site i'd love to hear of it um and you you talk about your your, your role as best practice and, and this is going to sound a little corny but do you also provide that safe space to discuss those challenges because I, and the reason i mentioned safe space is thinking back to ford and the example of alan mullally who came from, across from i believe boeing mm. this is this is way back but he was there were that lot. I think they were launching a car in Canada, yeah. and he was getting his people together to look at it. And all the all the all the lights were green, all the the rag ratings were green. Yet everything was falling apart. So he had to sort of get his guys together and say, "Look, this is a safe space. No one's gonna get the high jump for this. We need to talk about it. And come on, it's safe." And after a long, painful silence, somebody suddenly went. This is what's, this is the problem. And then someone on the other side of the room went, oh yeah, I've seen that. This is how we fixed it. So is it really, you know, when you come into issues like this, coming to the issues in the housing report, we've got these pockets of best practice in Cambridgeshire, in Essex, Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, Norfolk, Suffolk. Is it your remit to provide that safe space to say, it's okay guys, you can talk about this here. It really, really is, yeah, I think, that's something that's almost a unique offer for our organisation, actually. Yeah, yeah. Since around 2021, we've been running a series of roundtable conversations, and they're open to officers and members of, of all of our councils in the east of England, but also wider partners in organisations that may have an interest in whatever subject it is we're covering at that roundtable. But we've had really good feedback from those sessions. They've been really well attended by officers of councils and members. But... I think the thing that people have found most beneficial about it is that safe space and is that yeah, Chatham House kind of Chatham yeah. House rules, the place to have an informal conversation between members and officers, which doesn't happen very often at all. I think when people are in their own councils, there's much more of a kind of a formal governance type relationship yeah. between officers and members. And you have to obviously the 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 political tension. I mean, I. I 
raised this with Greg Peck, who is the cabinet or you know is the cabinet member for estates at Norfolk County Council, mm-hmm. about that when you're trying to do the best you can. And everyone, you know, let's be honest, everyone in their own way who is in a, a local authority is, no matter what party, no matter whether you're an officer, is trying to do the best for their community. Absolutely. And you've got that tension between... I mean, we saw this on, on the national stage with... Um, when, in 2010, when the Conservative government... The, the Coalition, beg your pardon, came in. Mm-hmm. And there's a, tradi- there's a tradition of, which I suspect has come to a screeching halt, of an outgoing minister leaving a note for his successor. Oh, yeah. And in this case, it was Liam Byrne saying, sorry, no money left. And <laughs> uh, a political opportunity was, sent, was sensed yeah. and taken. And I think that probably has, is going to have a deleterious effect because ain't nobody ever going to do that again. No. Um, uh, in handing, you know, that what they thought was a safe space between colleagues. I mean, there's a, there's a famous example, so famous I can't remember who said it, I think it was Reginald Morley, sorry for leaving such a mess, old cog, um, <laughs> as he walked out the door. Um, but, you know, that, 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 I, I hope that hasn't gone, but that is so important to be able to reach across those political lines, mm. to reach across that and say, this is for the good of the community and you've got to have that safe space to talk about these things, to share these ideas and best practice and challenges mm. and say, yes, we've seen that in our authority. Yeah. Mm. And this is what we did. And if it works for you, mm-hmm. absolutely, the best, you know, take it. Yeah, I think yeah. Ilga's a great convener. It is, you really are, you of, really are. Of our councillors, but also the wider partners that exist in, in that space. The COVID-19 pandemic is, is where I think we really honed our skills and our, our place as an organisation in that area. Bringing together partners was crucially important. Everyone had to work together to, to, you know, to face these, these huge challenges we were facing at that time. But thankfully, we've carried that forward into yeah. all sorts of issues that we've faced since the COVID-19 pandemic, which obviously isn't over yet. And we're really able to provide a space where we can bring our, our partners and our councils together to, to discuss those difficult issues and think of solutions to um, face them. Yeah, a, tri- mm. a tricky meeting should feel a bit like therapy, I think, in that regard. Just yeah. uh, get, get everyone in the room and sort of... I, I always feel that's the good sign. If you've got everyone in the room and everyone starts saying, like, OK, what's going on? And people start, like, loosening the collars a little bit and start saying what's actually going on. You're like, yes, I'm on to a good meeting here. This good, is, yes. Let it all absolutely. out. Let it's it go, good. guys. It's all, it's all private here. Chat and rule. No one's going to get any names. Just say it. And yeah. I, think, I think they're the meetings where you get the most good, I think, because that, that's where people start sharing the actually what's happening. Let me come on to sustainability. There's been in the past kind of an issue about who here has declared a climate emergency. Mm. And as important as that is, is that just a bit of window dressing? And it's really the, the you know, where the rubber hits the road, um, not to bring in a non-net zero metaphor, but, um, you know, it, in, terms of, wheels. <laughs> yeah, in terms of uh, ensuring that our renewables industry does what it needs to do with the very least amount of disruption. Mm. Uh, quickly, cleanly, mm. get it done, get it finished, get out of there. I mean, Matt, do you want to take this or? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, what, what, I, I haven't actually. I don't know if I've actually asked a question. I was about to say, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was really. You, you talk about sustainability, but that is so important. Yeah. Uh, do we risk getting hung up on what councils do and don't declare in terms of policy, rather, and 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 is it really concrete action? 
talk me through what the report's well, calling for. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, concrete action is always important. I think when, when it comes to the climate emergency... Not talking uh, about the embedded carbon aspect of concrete, <laughs> by the way. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a whole different kettle of fish. That's, um, ooh. Uh, but the, the absolute, I mean, I mean, the good thing about a, cli a climate emergency, thing, I, I, I suppose, is that it does, um, well, one, it creates, I guess, some political accountability, and two, it's, it's you know, it's a signal, signal of intent. But intention without actions, you know, as you say, it's a little mm. bit, little bit meaningless. So I, that's, I think that's, I think, and we have, we, I believe, I've spoken to local authorities in Apache who don't necessarily have climate emergencies, but they say, but it, you know, this is nevertheless something that we discuss at every meeting, yeah. you know, that, that we host. So don't, you know, no, no one should dare challenge our commitment to this, which I think is fine because I think, you know, so long as it's being discussed and it's being acted upon and considered, uh, I believe uh, we. we a policy that we were talking about uh, last year, I believe, it was something about uh, like climate first policy making. Mm -hmm. In the same way, a lot of people are talking about health first policy. You know, you, whenever you're designing a policy, you're thinking, well, okay, how is this going to affect the health of the people involved uh, and the people that this is uh, going to be put upon? You should also consider the climate and be like, okay, well, let's let's you know take this policy. How is this going to impact the environment? Uh, you know, and, and, and even the policies that seem like as unrelated to climate change as possible, do, do it anyway, just humour it as a little thought experiment. I think that's, that's an interesting way of approaching these sorts of climate related matters. I think, you know, and that leads to not just like, you know, the, the obvious things like let's build a cycle path, absolutely incredibly important, but it helps you tease out the things that you weren't thinking about, which I think is really, really important. And that, that like um, little things like, uh, you know, the climate footprint, well, not little things, but Things that you don't immediately think about, like the climate footprint of leisure centres, say, or, or things like that. You know, these... Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a key one actually. Never... Yeah, and it's and it's it's it, and I think things like that. It's 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 almost like what you don't know is is the dangerous bit when it comes to like climate change. Uh, you know, the obvious things like big power plants and stuff. Yeah, we're, we're kind of on that we're, to to an extent. Um, and our trajectory is looking good. It's the things that we don't initially think of that are sort of, I think, where where the potential, uh, you know, you can't act on something you haven't even thought about, I think is what I'm trying to well, say. The, 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 <laughs> the unknown unknown. Absolutely. As, as had it. But um, mm. to what extent does the dread issue of the five-year land supply uh, rear its head in terms of, we want this, we don't want this because we don't think it's particularly sustainable, but we've got that, weakness that vulnerability because of i mean these things are it's easy to it's easy to say oh you should just get your five-year lens it's not that easy actually no. um to what extent is that a, a vulnerability towards sustainable development i think there'll always be a tension for for councils to desperately want the the development that, that's needed in their communities but the issues we're facing around the climate around climate change are so vast and are so concrete and I think we're you know we're seeing it year on year with extreme weather events that are becoming less and less extreme because they're happening you know near on every month so the need to develop in a sustainable way is crucial and I, I, I think it I don't think there'll be a situation where our councils will allow developments that, that are unsustainable to go forward even if that does mean that they you know that the, the housing and the development that's desperately needed that community would be taking place what is the, the one take that you, as, as individuals or as the organisation, want the one main takeaway from this report? And then I would like to sort of very briefly get into what's next, what research you're coming out with next, next reports, or, or what's the next steps from this report that you want to see? 
Well, I mean, if, if there's one thing I think that would be really useful to draw this out, it is that, uh, it's that tenure point. I think that's really, really important to raise that idea that, you know, we need to boost the number of houses that are built, but in a way that is, uh, you know, that, that caters to the whole population and enables people to, you know, become homeowners, homeowners if they want, renters if they want, you know, provide that variety of choice that enables people to really get to where they want to go in life. And I think local authorities have a really big part to play in that, and, and, um, and so do housing associations. And I think that's something that as local authorities, that's a lever we can pull, I think. I think we're, and I think the region's really proud to pull it. Uh, with regards to what is going to happen going forward, I mean, I've, we're having discussions with the uh, all-party parliamentary group on uh, the next meetings on housing, so we're really excited to talk to them about housing and how we can... Um, Talk to colleagues in Westminster about how this can be shaped. Uh, what what's what's the art of the possible? What's available? That is that uh, is the <coughs> particularly at this point in the in the cycle. Absolutely, um, yeah. Where um, this what what's the what's going to cause the least amount of uh, turbulence? Yeah, absolutely. So there's we're, we're looking at that. We're also, as you said, there's that great convening uh, role that we have, and I think there's that the, the, there's been an appetite across the region when I was doing some of the research for this. Re uh, for this report, there was a lot of appetite for local authorities who really wanted to share their expertise, they really wanted to share the good things that they'd done and likewise hear from other local authorities that had done the same. So we're looking into how much we can do of that. As I said, we're, we're a small and agile team here, but we really try and like provide as much value as we can. So we really want to make sure that we target that as best we can so we can help as many local authorities as possible, really, to be, to be frank. And, Make sure that that's as much, you know, showcase as much good stuff from the east of England as possible because there's some really good stuff around here. Mm. I mean, Goldsmiths, I mean, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's a great, it's great. I want to go visit there myself. If you end up going there, let me, let me know. I will, I will. Oh, I, brilliant. Yeah, yeah tag me along. I, I want to I, visit. I, knew, uh, I, shall, I shall clue you in when I, uh, when I, I think it's a bit tricky at the moment because we're in Perda. Absolutely, locals. of course. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that's, that, that shouldn't affect it too much. But we'll, uh, when, when I get something set up, I shall let you know. Adam, what's, what's your key takeaway here? I think I, I would have to say my number one would be around the, the scale of affordable and social housing and the huge increase we need of, mm. of those tenders in, in our region. But Matt's already said that, so I'll go for my number two. Go on then. Which is the resources and capacity of our planning departments. Mm. I think tied, yeah. we really, really need to have a, a proper look at how we support our councils to recruit and retain the, the planning officers that they desperately need because they're well-placed to support the house building that the region needs, but are unfortunately being held back by their budgets and their capacity and resources to, mm -hmm. to achieve the necessary work. In terms of next steps, as Matt said, we've got a meeting of our all-party parliamentary group for the region coming up with a focus on housing. Unfortunately, I don't think the housing minister will be present, but there will be a letter sent to the minister following the meeting, and we'll be pushing hard for a formal response mm -hmm. to our ILGA report on housing, the scale of the crisis in the region and what needs to happen in the future on housing and we'll be pushing for a, a follow-up meeting with the minister as they're not able to be present at the meeting of the APPG. Well it, it, it's it's a hope that the, the minister when the meeting goes ahead is the same minister who gets to open open the letter. Uh, I think we're in the, 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 the mid-teens in terms of uh, the revolving door which, which is which is a worry yeah. but we not one we can we can fix because uh, I think this 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 discussion I hope has been a bit like an LED bulb, a lot of a lot of light, and no heat. We've put a few ideas out there, you know. Um, please uh, please do do take them if they, you find them of useful. But what has been uh, really important and I've really enjoyed is that learning about that convening role that Ilga plays, 
learning about how you can offer a safe space to talk about what are really, really difficult topics. And as well, uh, underlining how difficult those topics are, uh, but that you guys have really put out some really first-class research um, and, you know, uh, taking those issues forward in concert with the APPG. Uh, it's really important to have those discussions. You've really armed them with a really weighty uh, report, and I look forward to seeing what what's coming in terms of other topic areas from the East of, uh, the East of England Local Government Association. Matthew Stewart, Adam Thorpe, thank you so much for being on Eastern Promise. Well, thank you very much for thank having you. us. Cheers for having us, Mike. Great to chat. My thanks to Adam and Matthew for inviting me to come and discuss the report, which you can find at eelga.gov.uk forward slash housing dash report. That's double E-L-G-A dot gov dot UK forward slash housing dash report. And now... Marie Antoinette wanted them to eat it. Boris Johnson was keen on having his both ways. And they do say a balanced diet is having a slice in each hand. So, let's separate the sunken centres and banish the soggy bottoms as we look at where you get your cake-based kicks in this week's... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, Crowd Sorcery. First off, congratulations to the newly installed Chief Operating Officer of Norfolk Chambers of Commerce and friend of this very podcast, Jack Weaver, on his new role and on his brilliant recommendations, individually wrapped for freshness. Says Jack, I really don't know where to start on this one. I've got such a sweet tooth. The brownies at Macarons and More are pretty fierce. And I'm always partial to a fig bar dessert. I also had a very pleasant cream tea at Byford's in Holt recently. You know, I did wonder whether the fierce brownies to which Jack refers are a bunch of mean girls hanging around the entrance. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jamie Dady, factory support at Condimentum, helping to produce the finest ambient ingredients, agrees with my recommendation of the cakes at the goat shed at Fielding Cottage. Proprietor, one Sam Steggles. Nuffield Scholar and former guest on this very podcast. Yep, says Jamie, I'm all for Sam Steggles at the Fielding Cottage Goat Shed. Uh, failing that, Bakerholics in Attleborough. Another vote for the Goat Shed comes from Cat Downs, Conference and Events Coordinator at the University of East Anglia, who is taken with a number of recommendations for Fielding Cottage's finest. But she also points out maybe North Sea Coffee at Cromer or, bringing it back to the home team, the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Arts at the University of East Anglia. Back to the Norfolk Chambers of Commerce now, in the person of Amy Wright, event account manager, who admits, now this is a very tough choice, but there is a lovely bakery and butchery just near Banham Zoo in the Appleyard Court, all homemade, great shortbread. Thank you, Amy, though I confess, I am slightly alarmed by the idea of a butcher's just near Banham Zoo. Has anyone done a head count at the zoo lately? Animals and keepers? Hmm. Next up, 
Penny Bartram, Associate Strategy Director at Vice News and trustee at Norwich Film Festival says, I love how I'm so high up on the list of people tagged this week. You know me so well. Guilty as charged, Penny. So many to choose from, says Penny. So I'll have to limit it to this week's favourite, which was at St Giles Pantry in Norwich. As we're back in Norwich, it's another vote for macarons and more in the Royal Arcade from Michelle Chambers, Business Development Manager at Chaplin Farrant, who also admits that eating any kind of cake anywhere in the east of England is pretty much up there. Matt Skipper, whose job it is to connect businesses and individuals with legal expertise for Mills and Reeve. Cafe 30 Cakes are mwah, says Matt, and I shall be getting more of their calories, he says, when they open in Chapelfield Gardens on my way into the city. I think you'll need an early start, Matt, as I anticipate a lengthy queue. Founder of Hemp Innovations Limited, Simon Blackwell, meanwhile, likes his cake's fun size. Says he, it's got to be, got to be, the Cuppy Hut on St Giles Street, 01603 531146. Finally, let's pay homage to the ever-genial gentleman of business, Brian Bush, whose type 1 diabetes sadly precludes cake. However, Brian is never one to curtail the pleasure of others, so whether it's a Black Forest Gatto or a Pineapple Upside Down cake, enjoy it and please do consume responsibly. And that's all we have time for. Much like a Victoria sponge, this has been a jam-packed episode. I have been and will continue to be Mike Rigby. Next week, I'll be joined by the Chief Executive of the East of England Co-op, Doug Field, OBE, to discuss why it's never been more important not only to be a values-based business, but to stay true to those values, no matter what other pressures may exert themselves. It only remains for me to thank Chris Bruce, Julian Huppert, Paula Rogers-Brown and all my interviewees from Cambridge Tech Week. To Adam Thorpe and Matthew Stewart of the East of England Local Government Association. And thanks as ever to Engineer 49. Now, true story. Yes, it is a true story. Engineer 49 told me that he once asked his father, Engineer 21, to explain why thunder always comes after lightning. And lo, the answer came that even God has to wait for a sound engineer. What? What? Ugh. And thank you to you. I'm really grateful to you for your company, and I'd love you to get in touch and tell me what you think about the podcast, what you want to see in the future. All views are welcome, particularly if you're listening from outside the east of England. Get in touch with me at mike at easternpromise.site or contact me through our website, easternpromise.org.uk. Click on contact and be sure to tick the box to sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you on episode 64, but until then, bye for now. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production for the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.